I was one of those first guys that paid $400 for Google Earth when you had to buy it. People say e-scouting, but it's not really e-scouting. In several examples I show in this course, the Google Earth image is different than the Gaia image, is different than the OnX image, and is different than the base map. Now, in OnX, you can click on it to get more information about the road. You wouldn't believe the information that's available in this candle file. Guys, I'm telling you right now, all these elk finding features, I've seen elk in places they should not be. I want to make take it from beginning to end. I don't want to just talk about how great fires are for elk or how great beetle kills are for elk. I want to talk about how they all work together. This is Mark Levesay with Treeline Pursuits, and you're listening to The Wild Initiative. Put down your latte and pull on your boots. I've been blessed to harvest 22 of the 29 North American animals with my bow. My personal 24-hour record for death threats is 88. They will start putting two and two together and realize this is how you call bulls in. So when I go hunting now, that's the ethos I take with me. You know, whatever whatever this hunt is going to throw at you, you pull your big girl pants up and you get on with it. Giant bucks are freaking awesome. They're beautiful. But you know what? I would not trade this first buck for anything in the world. So I'm really, I'm a geek. Magicians and dragons and magic swords. <laughs> I shit you not, man. I'm the biggest dork in the gun business. I'm Freddie Hartice, Hollywood Hunter. This is Aaron Snyder. Hey, this is Trevin Stoltzfus with Outback Outdoors. This is Rihanna Carey. Hi, this is John Sloan of the interviews with the Haunting Masters. You're listening to The Wild Initiative. Hey, y'all, welcome to another episode of The Wild Initiative as part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. So getting on to today's episode, I am here out here at Western Hunting Summit. We are at Big Sky Archery just in Bozeman, Montana. I'm sitting down with Mark Livesey of Treeline Pursuits, Treeline Academy, and uh I've been familiar with Mark for a while, and I've, I've been meaning to reach out to him, especially uh, coming up to Western Hunting Summit. And 
lo and behold, I, I checked Instagram a couple weeks back to a message uh, saying, hey, you know, my name's Mark. Uh, I, I run this e-scouting course, and I was, wanted to talk to you on the podcast. I'm like, well, was it quite what a coincidence. Ryan told me to call you. So. Okay, <laughs> okay, okay. I, did not, I didn't, I didn't know that. But, uh, I couldn't, couldn't tell you why. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I uh, I cra- crashed on his uh, in his guest room for uh, a good week straight when I jacked up my ankle during hunting season. Met? So, uh, well, I I met Ryan. Uh, I think I met him originally through okay, yeah. Corey Jacobson, and then right, I mean, exactly. it's like, how do you meet anyone in the hunting industry at this point? You know, it's kind of. So I think I met him through Corey Jacobson one year. Then the next year, we kind of started chatting about something. And then they found out I did websites, and then I think Cody Rich told them to call me to work on the website for Western Hunting Summit, and it was a whole mishmash of things, and then uh, suddenly I ended up sleeping (laughs) in their guest room. uh, Well, that's (laughs) the way it goes out of with Oh, yeah. It's, you know, it's it's funny. I was talking with, uh, I can't remember who I was talking with about this, but it's, it's the whole thing of, like, Suddenly you realize, like, you've invited someone to come, like, crash on your couch, and you realize, like, I've never actually met this person before. And you're like, I should feel sketched out about this, but I really don't, and I don't know why. The way we communicate now, the social media stuff, and and the way we kind of get to know each other even almost, like, even Brian, I really, and Brian, too, all these guys that I met, too, was, I felt like I knew him before I actually shook hands with him i mean if shaking hands is a thing anymore mm-hmm. um yeah are we so allowed to do that i don't know it is it is a dynamic that it's a little hard to get used to but uh yeah we're here at the summit second year um i really love this thing it's a it's it's awesome i mean you know i've been kind of running around taking photos and working a little bit but just listening in on the uh the presentations the all the different speakers. I mean, the value you get, you know, and, and it's funny because from my perspective, I've, I've met a lot of these people and they've become friends, acquaintances. I'm used to, I'm used to being around them and I forget like the epic level of knowledge yeah. contained in these heads. It's just, it's absolutely insane. And, uh, you know, I'll be, I'll be going up on the mountain next week for the mule deer summit. I wasn't able to, to go up for the elk summit, but, you know, just what I've heard from that, and like you said, this is, in, this is first day of the, yeah. the kind of classroom sessions, and it's already been so just Well, now, so next week with the Mule Deer Summit, you guys are going to be slumming it because you guys won't have llamas. <laughs> so you guys are going to be slumping your own food up there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not, yeah not, I'm not, I don't know about that. I don't <laughs> um, But... Uh, you will be actually speaking as of yep. you know the day we're recording this. Uh, right. You'll be you'll be speaking tomorrow. You'll be presenting, uh, talking about. Uh, yeah, will we'll you be, be doing, doing e-scouting your tomorrow, uh, e-scouting? Yeah. Okay, and so I, I definitely want to get into that because we are it's, you know June. at that point where you know it's June yeah. elk season's coming, and uh, people you know may have done you may have done a little bit of e-scouting looking for your units right now you know especially if you don't live in state but uh it's time man you gotta you gotta pick where you're driving in you gotta pick the ridges you're gonna be looking off of and so i definitely i want to get into that but one thing i always like to start out with first is you know this podcast is really uh 
a lot about introducing folks to the outdoors, people without a huge background or a knowledge of the outdoors. So I always love to hear how you got your introduction to hunting and, and all of this. Um, which is kind of which is kind of refreshing because that's usually we dive right into the you know the whatever the topic is. But uh, I grew up in Missouri and uh, grew up white, hunting whitetails from about I think I killed my first whitetail when I was ten um, with a thirty pound recurve bow that really was not it was really hard for me to even handle that. Um, and that was really the the moment I was kind of hooked on it. My brother, I have a brother that's a year apart, and we just we were inseparable um, when it came to hunting. And we just, you know, hunted our, our little hearts out. Um, and then it might, you know, kind of fast forward. Um, when I was in my 20s, I decided that I, I had this bug to go west on elk. And, you know, I always say there's two kinds of archery people. There's people that that will take the risk and take the and go elk hunting and the ones that kind of dream of it. And, um, you know, for archery hunting, there's a lot. And I'm probably going to ruffle some feathers, but... You know, our archery elk hunting is just like, um, I don't know. There's something very magical about it. And with the rutting and the bugling and just the interactions that you get to have. So anyway, you know, I watched, you know, like everyone when I grew up, you know, the um, the Primos videos were all popular then. And so I, I had this bug. And so in my 20s, you know, I decided that we we're going to do it. And my first elk hunt was a disaster. We went in a minivan. A two-wheel drive minivan. <laughs> um, we lost all the hubcaps, and uh, oh, it was man. crazy. I ended up killing an elk, which was a miracle. It was a cow, just because she walked right to me. I mean, there was no, there was no expertise involved. And uh, when she first was walking towards me in the woods, she had a, um, a calf with her, and um, I thought it was a horse loose. <laughs> I'd never seen an elk in the wild <laughs> ever. And uh, then I was hooked. I was really just hook, light, and sinker. And I haven't missed an elk hunting season um, since then for 32 years. So um, wow, I spent most of my years, obviously, driving from Missouri to the Midwest um, to hunt elk for all those years, a couple decades plus. And so I have a real passion for beginners. I have a real passion for do-it-yourself public land. I've only been on one kind of quasi-guided trip. I did a drop camp one time for elk, and I didn't even like that. Um, I'm just, I like to do things and experience them on my own terms, and uh, I know we're going to get into it, but a lot of that is the same with e-scouting. You know, I've I've worked really hard over 30 years to refine my techniques and using all the tools as they became available, and I'm kind of in a unique situation because I have been going so long that I was one of those first guys that paid $400 for Google Earth when you had to buy it. It was 400 and that in the oh, 90s, geez. that's a, you know, it came out early 2000s. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and if you think about that, in the early 2000s, it wasn't that long ago. It Just the progression of technology in the short period of time, I think we lose track. We've kind of almost forgotten, like cell phones haven't been around that long. I mean, all these things that we take for granted now haven't been around all that long. So anyway, to kind of get back to that. So I have this progression of e-scouting, so to speak, from topographic maps checked out at the library, ordering National Forest maps um, in the crude states that they were back then, and then, you know, <laughs> trying to go and look at topographic maps and and then trying to figure out places to drive out from the West. You got seven, ten days trying to make it happen. It, it's a miracle we even killed out back then. 
and um, it's coming from the east. But it was just, I, I love the whole process about it. The, the hunting part, the planning part, the execution part. Um, I just loved it. And um, so, you know, through my 20s, um, I played college football, played high school football, played rugby. Um, I was a real contact sport kind of guy. And then, you know, into my late 20s, I started doing triathlons. And I couldn't even swim when I started. I told the story. I was on a podcast with Brian, with Gritty Bowman, and um, I couldn't even swim across the pool when I started doing triathlon, but I signed up for an Ironman my first year. So one of the things about me <laughs> that I'll say real quick is I'm kind of an all-in guy. My wife always makes fun of me because I'm either all in it or I am all out of it. So when I got into triathlon, I raced for about uh, 15 years, 12 to 15 years in that range, uh, did 11 Ironmans. And then in 2007, I did an Ironman at Coeur d'Alene. And that's what kind of got me introduced to this 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 area of Montana. We we live in Missoula, Montana now, but we loved this area then. But that was when I raced that last Ironman in 2007. I haven't done a triathlon since, so I was all out at that point. And then my elk bug. Now the elk I've never been out of, but that's when I turned up the notch for elk hunting. That's when I started really hunting a lot of days, making multiple trips a year, seeking multiple multiple tags a year. Um, and just really trying to hunt elk in every environment that I could hunt them in. And so that, again, goes back to the East scouting. There's no way I could do it um, on that kind of level if I didn't figure out a way to look at the – I couldn't visit these places. No way. Um, and so trying to come up with some systems and some techniques and some applications um, that I could use and how to use them uh, and have some success. And so, you know, I just refined that system. And so – after my triathlon career, I kind of immersed myself in my business and my entrepreneurship, and I ramped up my elk hunting. And then my business kind of got to the point, I own an event company called Ultramax Sports, and we produce marathons and triathlons. So kind of one of those things where I got into the business because I love triathlon, but it almost drove me out of the racing world. So in the hunting business, <laughs> my wife has already told me, she's warned me, she goes, now, Mark, you're not going to repeat the same mistake, right? You're not going to get into the hunting industry and it really ruined your passion. So I'm really protective of that. So this e-scouting course is really my first kind of venture into the into the entrepreneurship of hunting. So if you want to call it that. Um, but I'm very protected of that. So I've kind of semi-retired. And in 2016, my business was, was doing okay, but I was working crazy. I mean, 100 hours a week. It was just crazy. My company was doing 200 events a year. We're seven days a week. Um, it was it was brutal. I, my my fitness was deteriorating. I quit racing. I was getting out of shape. I was just, you know, in the event world, we're getting up at midnight, one o'clock. Oh, yeah. We're eating convenient. You you do oh, festivals, yeah. right? So we're living. I, I there yeah. You, go. you just got out so of the we're festival living industry, out of so I know exactly stores. what you mean. We're drinking energy drinks every. We're not drinking water. Typically, energy drinks supply some crappy ones supplied <laughs> yeah, by a sponsor, not even like a good one. <laughs> and when I first started Red Bulls, exactly. like everywhere in the event business, and then Monster came up, whatever. Oh, yeah. So, you know, you, it's funny to talk to you because you kind of know the pain of that. Well, your lifestyle is terrible. I mean, mm -hmm. you're, you're just not getting any sleep. So, anyway, my wife one day said, honey, we're selling our businesses off. I want you, we own running stores, too. She knows we're selling all the running stores. I want you to streamline your business. I want you to get a CEO. We're packing up. And we're moving west. So you can do what you want to do for a while. I'm like, so how do I meet a woman like that? Well, so how do I meet rare. a woman like that? 
Um, let's just, uh, I, let's just uh, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to need some advice on that. We'll talk after the podcast. So she, my wife, I mean, she's a dream. I mean, let's just be honest. Um, especially you, you don't even know the half of it yet. So, um, she said, you got, we were on a ski trip. We were coming back from a ski trip and we were having marital problems too. Cause I was working so much. I mean, everything was kind of, we had young, young mm-hmm. children, um, I'm 54. She's 45 ish. That's what happens when you get younger. Oh, and then they want to have kids. She wasn't right, supposed to be right. able to have kids. She was a cancer survivor. And all of a sudden she's pregnant. I'm oh, like, wow. whoa, that's weird. And then all of a sudden we got two and I'm 50 <laughs> or getting close to 50. And I'm like, okay. Um, so I kind of started my life over again. I had a chance to almost redeem myself, to, so to speak. So anyway, she said, one year, you have one year to get it under control. And I kind of took her serious, but I really didn't. So a few months into it, she finally says to me, so where are you at on this, you know, one year thing? We're leaving March 18. I said, you're serious, right? No, I, yeah, I'm ready to book a trip. Let's head out. We were going to go to Colorado. We were planning to move to Colorado. <laughs> we have a, we have a um, condo there and stuff, and we were going to move there. And uh, last minute, I was on Google. I just looking at states I haven't elk hunted yet. And I'm like, you know, I really want to elk hunt Montana. Why don't we go visit Montana? So we jumped on a plane, flew to Bozeman, uh, made the circuit, hit Bozeman, Missoula, all the cities. And we got to Missoula and we're like, this is it. So one mm-hmm. year on the day, we packed up. We sold everything we owned. We moved out here, our whole family in a 26-foot box truck, never looked back. And now I'm like, I'm in the elk hunting mecca. And I'm able to hunt like crazy numbers of days. And, and my wife so supportive. My kids are involved. We have pack llamas now. Um, we're in it. We're in it to win it. And um, we're living the dream. I, I keep waiting for something to happen. And maybe it will. But that's just the way it is. That's God's plan. So we'll let it be what it is. But for the time being, I'm really, really enjoying myself. And so now to kind of give a little more background. So um I am an addict when it comes to hunting new places. I was telling Brian earlier, I don't think I've hunted on one hand. I don't think I've been to the same place um, more than five times. Now, not the same place five times. I'm talking repeat places five times. I just, yeah, there's yeah. so many places. And it's just, I know I could have more success than I do. And I'm pretty successful if I just tried to develop places. So I want to be clear. I know we're going to talk about e-scouting and I'm, I have a passion for new places, but I am not dissing anyone that goes back to the places they, they really, there's a lot of value in figuring out. And you heard Brian Barney speak this morning. He's really Mm -hmm. into developing a place and really understanding it and have repeatable results. There's a lot of value in that. That's just not my gig. And, um, maybe when I get older, I don't know, it might be, but I love new places. So I know this is a long-winded introduction, but it kind of gets us going into here. But no, no. So now here we are. So I moved to Montana in 2016, and um, I've got a very understanding wife, as you, as you know. And she <laughs> understands that. Well, here's the thing. you got to remember, I work seven days a week. I was gone every weekend, year-round. So now when I go to her and say, I'm going to be gone, baby, I'm leaving. Like this year I told her, I have six elk tags, and I'm leaving – about August 25th, and I probably won't get back till about October 23rd or 4th. 
I said, I want you guys to meet me a couple places, and we're going to camp, and they're going to pack in with yeah. me a couple days yeah. on a couple hunts, my son and her. But, yeah, I won't be home probably for a month. I'll stay gone for probably close to two months. Um, and uh, little checks in here and there. But she's totally good. She loves it. And, and you know, there's almost some empowering to it, too. It Like, and this is not for everybody. There's not, this is not for everybody, and I'm not endorsing it. And I don't think all wives should be like this. And I don't think all husbands should be like this. You got to do what works for you. And, uh, but for us, it almost like re-energizes us. We, we appreciate each other more when we're apart. And um, we cherish our time. And that's just it. So that's where we're at. Well, the time you have together is it's right. is of a higher right. quality than like I mean it it comes down to okay yeah you may be gone for a couple of months but when you have that quality time together you know it used to be uh, yeah you may have seen her a little more often on a more of a regular basis but were That's you right. really spending so now, time with I, her oh what I forgot to admit is you know I'm gone those two months but yeah I'm don't work so I'm home I'm at our house. Every day, all day, and we homeschool our kids. So I'm with my family seven days a week, 300, well, not 300, whatever, however many days, minus a couple months. <laughs> but they do come a lot. I mean, we meet to camp. I'll come out for a few days, and we'll re- go into town and eat some, eat some food. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll meet up. They go in on a couple hunts with me. My wife's starting archery hunting now. She kind of goes mainly because she just wants to hang out in there she loves the backcountry. she packs on her own with the llamas um she camps with the kids on her own it it almost has empowered her to be completely self-sufficient and it's really it's been a new she was not no outdoor experience not an outdoors woman not certainly not a hunter nothing to do with it didn't know where her meat come from doesn't know anything about it and now she's in it like in every level so um it's been a really great and uh I wish other. I wish everybody could experience it, but I had to pay my dues. I don't want anyone to think I'm. You know, I got here easy. It was. A, it was a. It was a. You know, I put my time in, and it. And this COVID thing has been really rough. I'll mm-hmm. be honest with you. You know, everybody knows about that, obviously. And I'm in the event business, so do the math. We haven't had a single event since January, and uh, it's a little brutal for the company and my my employees. Are, it's difficult, and but you know. Like everyone else, we'll persevere, and um, it'll be it'll be what it's going to be. Yeah, and here we are at the Western Hunting Summit now. Yes, and I mean we weren't sure this was going to happen I for know. a while. Yeah, well we had to cancel the first yeah, one. We had to cancel yeah. the first elk one. And combine, well, combine combine them. Yeah. Well, yeah, we combined them, and it, you know it worked out. A lot of people ended up needing to move to next year, and and dealing with all that. So you know we got a, a solid group, solid group of men and women here. Uh, learning and isn't it exciting to see all the levels of ability like from oh it's amazing very beginners to pretty serious well and backgrounds and just types of people and everyone is just is such a variety of people and that's what blows my mind amazing. is this is not a cheap thing to come to let's mm-hmm. just be honest but the speakers are you just can't you couldn't put this together i mean this is there's some talent in the room minus myself <laughs> now and uh but we got like six repeats we got guys that are back here oh, yeah. from last year. And that, I don't know what and else. And there's a ton more at the Mule Deer Summit, too, that are coming back from last year. And I don't even know what more needs to be said. When you're coming to a summit that you went to the year before, now, obviously, some of the presentations are different and everything, but um, and some of the topics are different. But, man, that's a testimony to what Ryan and you have helped, 
help do. And so I applaud you guys, and I'm honored to be here. Well, it is uh, it is an amazing event. Like, really, I I mean, I'm just the I'm just the web web and marketing guy. I <laughs> well, I don't I don't lay any claim to organizing this. Uh, I, I you know that's all falls squarely on squarely on the Lampers' shoulders, and they've they've done an amazing thing. Well, and probably amazing more squarely here. on Hillary. <laughs> I mean, if we're just going to be truthful about it, um, yeah. Anyway, I love the Lambers, and, yeah. and so Hillary's another great example. You know, I know we need to get into East Cup, but look at that partnership they have. Mm-hmm. She doesn't. I mean, she's a girly girl. Let's just be honest. The girl's got nails and rhinestones, and her daughters do. He's got two daughters that are total girl. Albeit, she has been complaining all weekend about the nails because yeah. her daughter insisted yeah. insisted to put them on her and she's but like i can't the point do is right she but gets yeah. out there she's shooting her boat she's out there doing the workout right now yeah. with all the other guys yeah. <laughs> our, our lazy fat asses yeah. are We're sitting up here. here recording oh, a podcast yeah we can't uh, we can't work out we got a p- important podcast oh yeah. <laughs> yeah so but anyway i it's been a real honor to meet them and become friends with them and our friends our families have met and they moved from washington to montana mm-hmm. i was a little worried about that i mean that man, a lot less elk for me. <laughs> yeah. The Ryan Lampers moving into when, town. When it's never good for you as an elk hunter if Ryan Lampers moves to your state. And uh, so I've tried to steer him off my spots <laughs> um, every chance I can. And um, But anyway, I've really enjoyed meeting them. It's been, it's been a real pleasure. All right. Well, enough of this love fest. Yes. However much I, I could sit and talk about all of the wonderful people, but we're here to talk about you and you know, I mean, Not you're, me. you're We're okay. Here to talk about how to find yeah. out. <laughs> um, you know, uh, one thing, e-scouting is a huge thing for me, especially because I live in California. We have some amazing hunting in California, but my passion from day one has been elk hunting. Yeah. I fell in love with. I fell into the trap, the romantic, like you know, bow hunting an elk <laughs> trap that so many people fall into, you know, the mountains, the the whole thing. I took it hook, line and sinker. And I mean, we have elk in California. We have a lot of elk drawing an elk tag is a whole different story, but, uh, you know, it's, it, you know, it's one of those things. So I do some hunting in California, but I have the option to, to get out and actually do physical scouting and check out locations, things like that, uh, a lot more easily. But, you know, when it comes to hunting elk, I rely heavily on this. And, you yeah. know, I have more freedom now that I've, I've, you know, running my own business full-time where I can take trips like this. I can come to Montana for right. two and a half weeks for events and still still be able to work. But e-scouting has always been just a huge part of my hunting experience because you know i can't just spend a weekend and and come out and check out different areas and um so i'm very excited to to really get into depth on this topic but one thing you know a lot of people i feel like feel like it's cheating you know it's or it's just not a it's you know they they it leaves a bad taste in their mouth but something you said earlier when we first started talking was you kind of almost referenced it as like, I've been e-scouting for a long time from the time I was going to the library to pick up topographical maps. I'm like, this has been going on for a long, long time. And you, people say e-scouting, the word, and I know I use yeah. it too. Oh, yeah. But it's not really e-scouting. If you, you know, when we start getting into my course and we start talking about it, over half the course, well, that's not true. One third of the course 
has nothing to do with the computer. Mm -hmm. It's getting ready to use the computer. And I think that's one of the big mistakes, traps people fall into. They just turn their computer on and they just start throwing random waypoints down and they start looking at areas. They just start flying around and, and trying to, you know, just try to just whatever, see the big picture if they want to call it, whatever you want to call it. And that's fine. And there can be some, you can have successes with that. And you're going to stumble across some nuggets here and there. But I think the better you understand your limitations, the better you understand the realities, the better you understand about how to set your hunt parameters, which we might talk about, um, the better you understand the technology tools that you're actually using. Not just being the point of turning it on and throwing down a few waypoints, but really understanding how the offline environment works and being able to test it and verify. Because, I mean, we've got very limited amount of time to elk hunt. It's precious. You, I just don't want to waste it. Mm-hmm. So this e-scouting or this, I call it, it's more of a hunt planning than it is e-scouting. And this planning your hunt in a methodical, very organized, very structured approach increases your odds of finding more elk exponentially, in my opinion. But number two, you heard um, it was uh, Cody talking about effectiveness and efficiency. And so I feel like if I'm going to hunt elk this year in five states and I'm going to try to do it in the course of two months, I have to be, and I'm 54. There's, I mean, I'm pretty, I get pretty good shape by the time elk season rolls around and I've got llamas. So I've got some, but you still got to go up there and get them. Oh yeah. I can't afford to be inefficient to the point of ridiculousness. There's always some, but I got to go in there ready to go. And I got to put myself in places that I've got a real good chance of finding elk, not just running around the woods like Brian Barney because <laughs> he's super fit. Dear the dude heavens. can cover mountain range in a day. Oh, I've, I've gone up the mountain with him after he, elk, and that was, that was me going, right? Yeah. But, I mean, you know, that dude <laughs> can literally run the elk down. Oh, it's insane. And so now he not only does he do that, but he's a great e-scouter. So he's got double whammy. The dude's a badass on a couple levels. So, um, but anyway, so this process is what um, I've been using all these years, but it's been a work of in progress. You know, like I said, I started out with topographic maps checked out by that stacks. Mm-hmm. And then I used those and I'd take photocopies and I'd use duct tape to try to waterproof them. And the other, you know, a few months ago, Cody and I were talking about this, Cody Rich and I, we I found a shoe ball. I found some rolled up of some of these old maps I had of New Mexico. And I drew the same tag in New Mexico, and that was what was uh, ironic yeah. about it. I just drew the same tag. It's been 21 years since I drew this tag. And um, to see those old, I mean, the last time I hunted this unit was with duct, not duct tape, but um, packing tape covered topographic maps with permanent markers with stuff marked on it. That's awesome. So it's going to be exciting to go back and try it like with a new, a new, new flair. <laughs> um, but... So that kind of got me up to now is that so for the past 30 years, um, it's been a progression of improvements and refinements. And then I got to the point two years ago where I decided when I first moved out here, I started tree line pursuits and I was renting llamas and I started raising pack llamas. I'm really big into dehydrating my own food and doing my own meat. So I've done quite a few YouTube videos on that. I've written several articles for go hunt and other other places and i just kind of enjoyed that you know sharing some of my knowledge but i always wanted to do something with this e-scouting so i started recording some youtube things 
And it wasn't very long. And people started messaging me saying, dude, you need to, I love these long YouTube things, but it'd be great if it was in a course format. Mm-hmm. I don't remember even who told me some random message. I'm like, it just struck with me. I'm like, I need to reverse engineer everything I use. And not that I'm excellent at it. I'm certainly not, not the best, but I think I'm pretty good with technology. Um, I got an IT background. And so coupling that with the techniques that I use, I think that I'm like, you know what? I am going to dedicate a couple of years to developing this. And so for the past two years, I've been working on it. I started down the YouTube route and then I decided there was too much content. It had to be better organized. So that's how I ended up on the, with the online course format. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's how it ended up that going that path. And then I spoke last year at this summit yep. and that was the impetus of the course. The feedback was incredible. I couldn't believe it. I was so humbled. Um, Ryan said, dude, you're, you were the number one rated speaker. They did a survey thing. And I'm yep. like, really? I'm like, and uh, I spoke for like an hour and a half. I thought, man, I just got up there and just blew every, I mean, just talked and went over everything. This year, I'm two hours tomorrow. I'm a little nervous about it. <laughs> and um, so um, that really kicked off my real hardcore desire to finish this course. So I spent a whole year hardcore. Uh, and then... COVID actually hurt me in some regards, but helped me with the course. Yeah. Gave me a lot of free time over the, between January to finish up some modules. The course is not completely finished yet. There's about 20 modules online. There's still about five more to go. Um, but my membership plan is, um, it's a two year subscription. I decided I wanted to give everyone two elk seasons of this information so that they could really work at it. And so, but the two years is not starting. I decided I'm not even starting the two years for anybody that signs up, whether they sign up now or whenever until I finish. So it starts, the clock quote starts ticking when I finish the last module. So effectively, if people are signing up now, they're getting two and a half years or whatever. However, however much extra time. It doesn't matter. Honestly, the only reason it's two years, to be totally honest, I'm not trying to make this into a subscription. This is not an annual thing. This is a one-time deal. And, um... But what I'm trying to do is with this course, I had to set it the way the course works. I had to set a, a, an expiration date. Mm-hmm. So it, the, the platform that I'm using uh, kind of forced me into that, the way it manages memberships and yeah, everything. Yeah. So that's it. And, you know, I really didn't really ever plan on being a business. I wanted to just do it. And then when I started doing it, I'm like, you know, it took me two years. I said, and I had to buy a bunch of technology. I said, I got to, you know, charge something for it. And, um, so we started doing, and it's been, it's been great. It's only been open a month and a half and, uh, it's been phenomenal. I have done no marketing yet other than through podcasts and mm-hmm. Ryan and, and just the, the sheer, the thousands of questions that I've gotten. It's obvious to me, like you just said, there's a lot of people out there with a passion for finding elk. They spend so much money on their bows, non-resident tags. You know what those cost? Oh yeah. And just all this stuff that's investment that you got to make and the sacrifice and the time and the vacation and the time away from your family. You know, I love hearing Dan, you know, he said his whole life revolves around elk. It's just elk shape and Dan state and the way he talks about the passion he has for elk. I have that same passion, maybe not quite as crazy as he, him, but I don't want to waste any time. And I want to hit the ground running. I want to spend my time hunting. I don't want to spend my time scratching my head. I certainly don't want to spend my time in places that don't have elk. So my plan is to go into an area, hunt it. If there's no elk, I'm moving to plan B immediately. That's always been my approach. 
So having three to five of those plans, I call them hunt areas. So a hunt, the hunt plan is your overall plan. And then your hunt areas are three to five of those areas that you could immediately move to across the unit, different mountain range, depending on the state and what tag you got and all of that. But another hunt area is not just picking up your camp, moving down the trail a mile or two. That's not a new hunt area because you know what can happen. The road, I'll talk about this tomorrow. I've had two cases in my elk hunting career, did all this work. I loved this spot, and the road was washed out or mm-hmm. collapsed. Didn't know it. Wasn't on the motor vehicle. Couldn't find it anywhere. Get there with the sign. says road closed. We're like, what? We're 10 miles from our spot. Well, we had to go to plan B. Well, the first time it happened to me, I didn't really have a plan B. I literally had to drive back into town, get cell service, and redo, redo my offline maps and you know stuff like that. In my earlier years, we never even dreamed of a separate. We just went into an area, and that's all we had. We had seven days. You had to commit. So I guess what I'm saying, if you got seven days to hunt, you may not need five hunt areas because you can't move five times. But if you got 10 days, you might want three or four. And there's a lot of other reasons for having hunt areas. I know you're going to probably have some questions for me, but not only like access issues, not only backup, no elk, there could be too much hunting pressure. There could be uh, a fire that pops up in the West, man. I mean, one day your unit looks great. Next minute it's burnt to the ground. Mm-hmm. And that's happened to me. Now, it wasn't an area that I've planned on hunting, but one of my hunt areas a couple of years ago burnt before the season. And now I'm going back to it. So think of the work. So I did all that work. This is just kind of a rabbit hole, but I did all that e-scouting work for this area. Now it's two years after this fire. I'm ready to go in there. It's going to mm-hmm. be prime time. It's probably going to be on my list this year. And um, so hunt planning, hunt areas, and then using your tools to develop those. So it's not, Brian. you know, Brian Call asked me, what separates your course from, like, Elk 101 or maybe some of the stuff that Randy puts out, which I love Randy. He just got through speaking here a few hours ago. I think the difference is, is that my, I want to make take it from beginning to end. I don't want to just talk about how great fires are for elk or how great beetle kills are for elk or how great north slopes are for elk or how great um, wide bottom canyons with interspersed meadows are for elk. I don't want to talk about how elk love, they really love that 15 to 25 degree slope. I want to talk about how they all work together. I want to talk about how to find clusters of those way of those elk, I call them elk finding features. And and the approach on this course is all about increasing your odds. It's odds multipliers. I call them odds multipliers. So for example, you find a great looking north slope, okay? You love it. And then you start finding benches that are halfway to three quarters of the way up. That's good. That's another elk finding feature. I like it. Elk love benches. And then I see the bottom of that little canyon doesn't have a trail in, doesn't have an established trail. Freaking that's gold for me. And then I see that it's flat bottom. It's not a V bottom. You know what I mean? A real steep bottom. Yeah. So the flat bottom means it's going to hold moisture, which means there's going to be a lot of food in the bottom. And uh, and then I start seeing interspersed meadows. Those are positives. And then up on the ridgelines, I see some saddles that connect another drainage. And then the orientation of this drainage is a spoon basin, which is my favorite, but it's a north-facing spoon drainage. When you find places that have all those things I just mentioned, you're looking good, you know. And if you can put some of those with a few other little features, 
maybe even throw in a nice little beetle kill spot. Um, but what, my point, what I'm trying to make here is once you mark these points, and I know it's kind of hard to explain here, but you're going to start seeing these clusters. Mm-hmm. And when you start seeing these clusters, then you could start really zeroing in on what you're looking at. And I find a lot of guys that they, they get caught up on North slopes is their thing. They just love to hunt elk on the North slope. But I feel personally that there are other factors that could complement. I love North slopes too. During I'm mainly talking archery too. Sorry, but I love being on the North slopes. That doesn't mean elk aren't on the South, East, or West. It's an odds thing. If you're going to roll the dice and you got one slope to pick, and it's archery season, pick the North. That doesn't mean ignore the other slopes. Um, I hope that makes sense. But yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's kind of the approach. I don't know if that makes sense or. But uh, that's kind of the approach. So coming into this, you know, I, I maybe I'm just going over the counter. Maybe I, uh, you know, for, so let's take my very first hunt. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I still laugh. I still laugh about this. And everyone, uh, everyone listening that's been listening for a while is going, oh, yeah, his first hunt. Yeah. Um, my first hunt, over the counter, solo archery elk hunt. Solo archery. Public land, that- Idaho. Cause I'm smart like that. Yeah. That's um, aggressive. But so, you know, coming into that, I, I've got a choice of several units, you know, it's over the counter, yeah. over the counter. So I can choose from several units. Yeah. And so I'm going in there and I, you know, for all I know is I'm like, okay, well, you know, put the little overlay for the Idaho, uh, Idaho unit breakdown. Yeah. And like, well, Idaho's really big. There's a lot, a lot of woods here in Idaho. Well, shoot. Like, where do, where do you even start? Well, man, so if you think back what I just said, those I know I rattled those off, and I know it was quick, but those features, it's learning where elk want to be. Like Dan said it. You know, Dan said, I know I'm kind of referring to some, and nobody's on this, but yeah. <laughs> Dan Staten with Elk Shape, I just love this guy because his approach, he's so passionate, and it's contagious. But one of the things that he said during presentation today made sense to me, and I'm going to mention it tomorrow, was that he used to hunt elk based on his fitness. Kind of like what Brian, what I mentioned about Brian. He just relied on his extreme fitness to kill elk, and he killed a lot of elk. But now he is learning, and we've talked a lot about this, where finding where the elk want to be and getting more dialed on that makes it i don't want to say it makes elk hunting easy because elk hunting is never easy let's just be honest you can say i know i kind of laugh a lot about my course i say hunt smarter not harder but that's kind of a lie because i don't care how well you got your spot dialed in the places where elk want to live are never going to be easy and that's part of it part of it is really looking for the places that are hard kind of not always but so anyway to start from the beginning, you know, like you just said, it really is a process. I mean, there's no way to cover it all here today. But if you do the, if you work the steps and you, and you, because the way we kind of do it, the way I kind of do it is the first thing is understanding realities and limitations and really understanding what your style, solo, like you said, are you going to backpack hunt? Are you going to car camp? Um, what's your hiking capabilities? What's your hiking capabilities with 130 pounds on your back? Mm-hmm. That's a different capability. Coming to realization, if you do kill an elk, you got to get the thing out. If it's archery season, if it's 70 degrees, I mean, what's the, 
you know, I mean, what's your situation? I mean, what's your capabilities? Um, what's your endurance levels? Really understanding that and really not exaggerating it either. Because let me just say this. You can kill elk at every ability level if you accept your level and you work within your level. Where you start not killing elk is when you get outside of your ability level and you ruin yourself and you get dejected and you can't physically maintain um, the ability to hunt and you lose mental focus. All the things that go into it. So first is grasping this reality and setting up what I call your hunt parameter. What is my distance, my, my kind of my maximum distance? Now, distance is not, you got to be careful saying that word because five miles in Kansas is not five miles in Idaho. So, and five miles in Idaho is not five miles in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. So, you know, with it, keeping in fact the terrain you're going to be, so setting those up. Now that you know what you kind of ex- can do and what, what you're going to be comfortable with, that's when you start kind of looking for areas that you, you want to hunt. And how I first do it, I call it establishing the zones of pressure. It's one of the first modules. It's not the first module in the course, but one of the first e-scouting modules. I don't do that digitally. That's one of those processes where I do it with National Forest Maps. And I do, I'm going to make this really fast because I, I know we want to ask some more questions. But I want to know where the pressure is coming from. I want to know every road that's open to motor vehicle access. I want to know every dead end. I want to know every campground. I want to know every legitimate access point, and I want to study them before I do anything. So I'll take, let's say I've got unit X. I will take the entire unit. I will trace that entire unit border with a permanent marker based off the regs onto my national forest map. Some of them have the units now in some states, but, but I trace that unit. So I've got my defined outer boundary, so to speak. And then I will go back and I will trace every open road. Well, how you find out if the road's open, you have to access the motor vehicle use maps online. You have to look at OnX. You have to compare the two because they can be wrong. So you can't just rely on one solution. You can look at Gaia. You can look at OnX. You can look at the, the best, most reliable way, which is real cryptic, is to download the motor vehicle use PDF maps have them right beside your national forest map and translate the roads onto your national forest map. So once you do that, you outline all those roads in a certain color. That's what I do. I have a color scheme I use. What It doesn't matter the color scheme as long as you get one. And I, anal- I mark all open roads, okay? Then I take a piece of cardboard. I know this sounds crazy. I will cut a one-mile, a two-mile, and a three-mile radius. And I will cut and I will punch a hole in the middle so I can see. Mm-hmm. I will lay that over every trailhead, every dead end, every campground, um, and any place else that I identify as I think this is a significant pressure point. And I will draw a circle. I do a two mile circle for guys that are hunting from trucks or camps and do it, maybe it's a one mile. Again, it kind of bases on your your limitations we talked about. Yeah. Doesn't matter as long as it's a system. So let's say two miles. Circle the two miles. Then, a lot of times, if it's a if it's a super roaded area, like there's a lot of roads, I won't always do this because it gets too jumbly. But if there if it's a you know more moderately roaded area, I will take a compass, just an old school elementary pencil compass, and I will set that to one mile and I'll screw it down, mm-hmm. and I will do all the roads both sides one mile, and then I will shade them in. I know this takes time, but let me tell you, when you take your national forest map and you do that and you start seeing what's left, 
you haven't looked at a single terrain yet, okay? Remember, yep. nothing. And you're like, things just start to pop out. You're like, oh, look at this little area over here. It's only, you know, a mile from the road, but there's no other way in, and it's there's no shading in there. There's no road. There's no overlapping circles from all those yep. things I told you. Then I open up Google. That's when I open up Google Earth. I kind of always go with Google Earth and the initial phases because I like the tilt and the zoom and the image quality. Um, there's a lot of things about Google Earth I like for this original, what I call this flyover stage or this analytical kind of just figuring out what I, I'm just trying to learn my unit or learn my area. I think what you're getting here is I spend an enormous amount of time learning the area. And let me tell you one more thing. When you trace these roads, okay, and you outline that unit and you circle those campgrounds, you will not, you don't realize the historical knowledge that you're banking. Mm-hmm. You're learning the road names. You're learning the access points. You're learning the, you really are starting to amass a set of knowledge for that area. I call it, I call that historical knowledge. And um, it is, uh, it's kind of hard to um, replicate that. There's really no other way it, with no boots on the ground. But when you get on site and you're driving around and you're, you're these roads and these mountain, they're, they're almost familiar with you if you take this approach. Does that make sense? Yeah. You're getting, oh, yeah. Old, you're getting intimately familiar with the area before you ever put boots on the ground. And so I feel like that's just you've got a leg up on everybody else in that unit that's hunting that. You've automatically got a leg up. You're miles ahead. And like I just said, you're, you've just increased your odds. You haven't found a single elk finding feature. You've done nothing more than you know where every parking spot is. And um, we were talking about this earlier. So many guys will invest in a spot and they pack in. I've done it. I hate to admit this more than once. Packed in six miles with my llama, seven miles, only to find out I run into a dude. I'm like, well, how did he get in here? I missed a road. Mm-hmm. I overlooked an access. That's a bummer. You know, there's nothing more demoralizing than working your ass off to get into a place and finding out that you missed an access. So I spend an enormous amount of time on zones of pressure. I think the zones of pressure, however you do it, if you choose to do it digitally, I choose to do it on the maps because I want to see it big. There's something, there's something especially, it's, it's almost hard to explain. Right. It's, I, because I mean I'm I've, I've been a digital project manager for almost 20 years so at this you point. Like, oh, I gotta pull like, map out. <laughs> like I am like I'm a computer guy, but even with my projects, there's something about having being able to like physically hold it and and really see it laid out that you just can't replicate on a digital map. Well, and like it doesn't it, matter. Laying yeah. the table, just spinning it around and orienting it, and just standing back and looking at it. And, uh, yeah, no, I agree. And it's, yeah, and I, I, I really like that method because it's, it's one of those things I feel like I've done parts of that before. Or I've used tools that kind of replicate little bits of that or right. I've considered pieces of it. But I've never really taken the time to sit down, consolidate all, like, and, and really do all of those things. I've done each of them a little bit here and there, or maybe like two or three of those pieces, but I've never really combined them all. And so you end up then, yeah, missing, miss missing road. something. And it and can be a hunt killer. 
Oh, I'll tell you, I was, uh, I was in Arizona. I found some great spots. And I'm sitting there. Is that a station wagon? <laughs> yeah. And it's just going through, coming from this other direction that I never expected to see it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's demoralizing. What would you, you think when that happened? I'm like, oh, I felt like, well, I'm an idiot. Yeah, well, <laughs> I just, it's that. Yeah. And it's like, but you wasted a whole, not, now well, guys, it doesn't mean there's not going to be animals where there's vehicle. That, and everybody's on me about that because, not on me, but they ask me questions about that. Like, guys from Oregon, I'm getting a lot. Mm-hmm. Oregon's mm-hmm. probably my number one membership in my course right now. Oregon and Washington. I think mainly because Ryan is really an adamant. Yeah. promoter of yeah. my course and he's got a big following there but the point is they're like hey we want to see a little more on areas that have tons of logging roads and how do we deal with that so i'm working that's another that's mm-hmm. going to be add-on mo- modules to my course i cover that pretty extensively in the zones of pressure but it's hard i do a lot of case examples in this course it's not all about just what you should be looking for I'm actually showing it on the screen over and over and over. Like, I just did the beetle kill. You'd think beetle kills, yeah, it was an hour and a half of only how to analyze beetle kills. Beetle kills are one of my favorites. I I mean, if I'm, I kind of let the cat out of the bag. (laughs) One of my favorite elk killing places is beetle kills when the trees are dead, but they're not on the ground. Well, that is not easy to figure out. Everyone's like, well, just look at Google Earth. I'm like, what if the image is 2014? Yeah. And then that's, that's, what is that, seven years ago? So you roll in there, and all the trees are on the ground. I got an example that I'll make sure in a little later, but, but I, made a, I made, almost made a science out of studying beetle kills. And so this module, going through the beetle kills, was trying to figure out what stage these beetle kills are in. Well, if Google Earth image is 2014, you got to make some extrapolations. But then I looked at OnX. The image was way newer. Trees are on the ground. So then I started looking at Gaia. And then I started looking at base map. And um, not during this course, I've known this, but I want to make the point in this. The beetle kill is a great way to show it. This is why in the course, I know it costs a little extra money to have Gaia, have Onyx, and, you know, whatever. I realize that. And you don't have to do it. To be a great e-scouter, you do not have to have all these platforms. But let me tell you, in several examples that I show in this course, the Google Earth image is different than the Gaia image, is different than the OnX image, and is different than the base map. How crazy is that? You would think mm-hmm. that these would buy their data from the same places. Well, they may, but they're all different dates. And the reason I know it, because I do a lot of trailhead analysis. I study. So when I mentioned pressure, one of the things about the zones of pressure I use Google Earth for is I will zoom in on every access point. I want to see how many parking places are there. I want to see if there's horse corrals there. And I want to see, is this thing a Walmart parking lot or is it just like a pull-off spot? Because mm-hmm. some of these things that are labeled trailheads look like freaking Walmart parking oh, yeah. lots. And then you'll see other ones that are labeled trailheads. It doesn't even look like you can drive to them. So taking the t- you can't do that in the field. The Zoom capabilities of OnX and all these hunt platforms in the field, mm-hmm. offline, don't give you that level of Zoom. And so this is all work that has to be done at home before you go. So when I'm doing the zones of pressure and I'm marking campgrounds, I look at every campground. I know it. You're like, why would you do that? How many camping spots are there? How big is it? If it's just a two-horse little campground, big deal. But I, those start to paint that picture I'm talking mm-hmm. about, the zones of pressure. 
And so that's just one module. That's one of 25 in this course that just teaches you or helps teach you how to evaluate the pressure and how to work around the pressure. And everybody's like, well, Mark, I I can only get a couple miles from the road. You know, we're backpack. We can only be three or four miles. No problem. You just have to adjust your zones. You, but you can't be looking 10 miles in when you can only get two miles in. So by setting up your hunt parameter, remember we talked mm-hmm. about that five-mile radius, you overlay that on top of your zones of pressure and stuff starts really making sense. And then you're not wasting time e-scouting areas that you cannot reach. I just talked to a dude, um, you know, I was just on a podcast recently with Eastern Podcast, guys from the East. They did all this work, and they got out there. One of their guys in their group was a little the, sh- the fitness and the altitude really affected them. They couldn't even get to any any of the places that they uh. scouted, so they had to resort to car camping. But no big deal. But if they had a plan for that, if they just said, "Hey, let's set this pie in the sky plan as our option A," and then our backup plan is base camp out of vehicle, and this is our area, but they put all their eggs in one basket. They had to pull back to the base camp. They had no offline maps. They had no waypoints, no nothing. So they spent days trying to, you know, reconnoiter and kind of figure out the area. And they just, I mean, they just on a seven or 10 day hunt. They just wasted some days. Well, and that brings us back to what you were saying. You go through this whole process. You lay out that map. You start detailing out those roads. You know, yeah, you want to have that backup plan, but... You know, even if you don't have as as much of a backup plan as you probably should, after you've gone through that whole process, like you said, you have that knowledge of all those roads. You're figuring it out. And you may not, like, you know, your plan A, you may not always need to go fully to plan B. Where if, Never, you hopefully. Know, yeah, well, like, if you're, you know, say you got your plan A, and maybe it's just a road closure. It's not, you know... Your whole plan A hasn't, you know, there's not a fire. It's not, you know, there's not an avalanche, whatever, that's destroyed half of this area. Maybe it's just a road closure. Maybe the motor vehicle use ramp is wrong. Exactly. Maybe they said June 16th and they meant to say October. um, What happened to me was the motor vehicle use map said it opened on June 16th, but it opened on 9-16 and we were there 9-2 and it was a mistake. Now, who do you blame? But we had plaque up B. It was 25 miles down the road. I already had all the turns marked for the driving distance and everything ahead of time. Boom, we drove right to it. We almost didn't miss any honey. Mm-hmm. But if we had had to pull over and say, okay, boys, let's get the maps out. What are we going to do? Well, you've done this too. How good of a decisions and how good a judgment do you have in those situations? <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> when you're tired yep. and you're demoralized and the pressure's on and you feel like your hunt is ticking away all these things, you're, you're, you're dehydrated, you're low on food, your calorie intake is down, you're eating crappy Mountain House. Hey, don't be talking down on my Chili Mac. That's all I got to say. Well, That's I'm, like a, I'm a big fan of the biscuits <laughs> and gravy. Um, <laughs> but the point is, yeah. you don't make good judgment calls. You're like, well, um, let's just let's run over here. And before you know it, you're down a rabbit hole that maybe you'll get lucky and there'll be elk and maybe there won't. But it's not... It's not a guarantee. I never want to base my elk season on maybe I'll get lucky. That's right. And And I have. I've based a lot of my elk seasons on maybe I'll get lucky. And a lot of people do. And another thing people do, um, which there's nothing wrong with it, is they find a place that they have some moderate success with, and they never leave. Mm -hmm. Because they know it. They're comfortable. And they don't want to risk going somewhere else. 
And I just want to tell people, like, through your podcast, I just want to be like, man, there's a big world out there, and a lot of it has elk. Get out, do it. Get out there and develop some new places. And and I just, I can't tell you how much thrill I get packing in in the middle of the night. We're, we get to our camp. We ain't even got our tent set up and a bugle. Oh, you hear oh, that? I'm like, buddy, you got it. You know, and it doesn't happen every time. But one time, man, we packed into Wyoming. I had the East Cat this area two years ago. Never been there. Never even drove to the trailhead. Never been in the unit. Got there about 11 o'clock at night. Had to find the trailhead in the dark. Packed in pitch black. Never seen no train. We get the teepee up. We just lay down. It was early. It was almost morning. We only had a couple hours. And the bulls were screaming everywhere. Everywhere. And next morning was rifle season. And they were bugling. Mm-hmm. It was one of the most un- surreal hunts that I've been on. And I'm not saying I know where. I'm just saying what I found in this spot was the scenario I told you. I had all these elk fights. The clusters were incredible. I had all these north faces. I had these benches. I had these drainages. I had this. I had a fire. I had a three-year-old fire, and it was it was green as a gourd in Oct- in um on Google Earth in the month of September. We can talk about the historical timelines. There's all kinds of things in that. But all the things were pointing. And I said, boys, we're going in there, sight unseen, seven miles in. That was, no, I didn't even have llamas. I didn't take my llamas on that one. And uh, and it worked out. It was incredible. And it didn't always happen that way. Yeah. But I do know one thing. If you... I'm pretty confident saying you plan these approaches and you have multiple backup options and you have enough days to execute it, let's say at 10, good things are going to happen. may not kill an elk, but it probably won't be because you weren't given an opportunity. Other things happened, which that's that's hunting. But, you know, we're kind of digressing here. But um, Well, you, you were talking, you know, you're talking about how there's such a big world full of elk out there. And... I, you know, I, I think that's a, a key point that I've gotten caught into where you get you get demotivated, you get discouraged. And, uh, you know, we were talking a, a little bit ago uh, to not this last season, but the season before I went into Colorado with a buddy who uh, who had llamas, which I think you own some of. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, we, we, were, <laughs> we talked about that. Um, it's possible. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we went in and as we were going in, we had met a couple of guys coming out and. You know, a couple of just no BS guys. We we sat and talked with them, and they're like, nothing. And and we had put a lot of eggs in this basket, and and we we went in anyway because we got caught. I feel like we got caught into the trap of, yeah, we could go somewhere else, but what if there's no elk yeah. there? You know, and we didn't we didn't have a plan B. That was that was also the problem, but. It's it is so easy. Like you know, you do have these other plans, and like you said, you get you get really committed, or you see a modicum of success. Maybe you see a couple of cows, right. or you hear that bugle, and you're right. like, okay, okay. But then you get worried. You're like, well, okay, you know, we've been here three days, just nothing's happening. We, you know, we we haven't heard anything since then, but we we had that little little bit. So we better just stay here. Yeah. We better just stay here, just in case, because. We could go somewhere else, and we may not hear a bugle. It's it, you're so man, you're so dialed to that. And the reality is, there's no there's no guarantees you make a move. And making a move isn't easy. You're going to sacrifice a half a day, or maybe mm-hmm. even a full day, to make a move. Depends on where you got to go. 
well, half a day uh, out, you yeah, know, half re- a day in at your next spot exactly. with driving included. That's yeah, yeah. Usually so a it's a commitment. Day. But, you know, elk are big animals. Um, they leave a lot of sign. They make a lot of noise in September to some degree. And you got to keep going till you find elk. You're going to have to kiss some frogs along the way. But if you're finding cows, you know, especially in archery season, and you're just not quite locating the bulls, you got a hard decision to make. The bulls maybe not have gotten to them yet, or you're just not quite in the right spot yet. Well, like, look at this example. So we were up on the mountain, and they were having a elk calling contest down on the end. Not a contest, <laughs> but a, uh, they were doing a calling seminar on the end of the ridge. Okay, this is in the in the wild. Probably a 1,000 yards, maybe a little more from camp. I'm in camp getting the llamas packed up because we're getting ready to pack down. I never heard a single bugle. Now, part of it is I'm 54, <laughs> and my, hear- my hearing is deteriorating. I have to take my son along to hear the elk now. Um, not completely true, but pretty close. But, you know, so what I'm saying is I didn't hear them. They didn't mean they weren't there, and I didn't move enough. I, you know, elk hunting success is based on stacking odds in your favor, but the second thing it's based on, is I, you know, one of the other critical facts, not the only thing, but mobility, moving. Huge. Don't get your camp set up crazy. I know we're giving like elk hunting vice here, maybe more than e scouting, but try not to set up a super elaborate camp that you're so invested in that you don't want to move it. How many times does that happen? It happens all the time. Mm-hmm. And um, especially vehicle based camps, they're really difficult to move because you start getting spread out, <laughs> got the wall tent up, you know, all this stuff. And I know those wall tents and stuff are fun, and, and it's a it's a social thing. That's fine. If that's your goal, if your elk camp is as much friendship and bonding and uh, then killing elk, then just keep doing it because there's nothing wrong with that. But if your number one goal is to kill elk, that's your only goal in life, then you got to stay mobile and you got to go where the elk are. Now, you might get lucky throwing up a – wall tent and hunting elk, but on do-it-yourself, private land hunts, hunting from the road, particularly from a base camp, the odds are against you. I'm mm-hmm. just going to be honest. They're really against you. So if they're against you, one way you can reverse that is being mobile, going out at night, doing lots of night calling, lots of night driving, lots of stopping and turning off your car, get truck, getting out, listening for 30 minutes, not five minutes. And don't do it till don't do it right after dark. I found the elk will take like a couple of hours, like after the sun sets, and in a high pressure area that everybody says that bulls don't bugle in this area. Well, that's because you're asleep by the time well, they're bugling. Exactly, <laughs> or you're not out there at midnight, one o'clock. I would rather sacrifice my morning hunt if I'm not finding elk. I will give up on if I'm hunting from the road, which I don't do. But this day I was, we're hunting from the road. We got a base camp set up. It's great. We're not running into elk. We're not finding elk, but we're going out morning and night. Stop it. Sacrifice one or two mornings. Stay out all night or most of the night. Drive the roads. Hit the hit the dead ends. Hit the side road. Any place you can get, you might be surprised what starts happening. And I don't mean run around just blowing your bugle tube. Every, you don't necessarily have to try to locate them at night, but although a lot of people do it, and it does work, and they will, um, they sometimes will respond. But sometimes I'll just sit there for a while and just relax and just listen. Well, and, and also, how nice of a freaking night is that? After you've been hunting hard, you're discouraged. Yeah, you know you're just sleeping to in. Just take a couple of, ni- like, a, a night or two and 
because you can relax. Well, you can sit and you can enjoy one of the things we all love most about yeah. hunting. Just being out there in nature, listening to the dang elk bugle. Well, and, you know, guys think that I'm going to kill. I got to be out there morning and night. I can't stop. I can't stop. And it, that is true mm-hmm. if you're in them. <laughs> but if you're not in them and your tactics are not working, don't be afraid to switch it up. Yep. Same with East scouting. Work your plan. And when your plan's not producing, forget that plan. Divorce that plan. Leave that plan behind. Don't have regrets. Don't like, oh, that was my number one spot. These other spots are crap. They're not. You 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 got to have faith. You went through the system. You did all the work. They may not be as good on paper as that, but guys, I'm telling you right now, all these elk finding features, I've seen elk in places they should not be. South slopes, no benches, super steep, V-bottom canyons. I mean, everything that I look for was not there. Mm-hmm. And there's 200 elk standing over there for some, no food, brown as can be. Elk just sometimes just want to be where they want to be. And that's the beauty of it. Now, I do think there's things. You can stack the odds. We've talked about mm-hmm. it. But they also will defy the odds um, from time to time. Have faith in your plan. Work the plan. Execute the plan. The other thing is when you get tired and you're worn out and you're exhausted, pulling out that written hunt plan. I'm a big about the written hunt plan. I know I'm digital, digital, digital. E-scouting, Google Earth, Onyx, Gaia, all, I'm all about the technology. But I'm about the maps in the beginning. It's funny how I never thought about this. I start with the maps, and then I use all the technology, and then I finish with a written hunt plan. It's on paper. Not not a PDF, on paper, printed, in my pack. I can't tell you how many nights. I say this all the time, but it's kind of a broken record. But I have been laying in my tent. I'm like, what the hell's going on? I can't. We can't. There should be elk here. I'm freaking dialed on that. I know what I'm doing. Where are the elk? I'll pull my hunt plan out. I'm reading down there. I'm like, oh, I didn't. I forgot about this spot I looked at. Man, I forgot. Totally forgot about this classing spot. Uh, I totally forgot about this drainage. I was going to go right over here. And I wrote a lot of good things about this, you know. And um, then I go to I got new energy. I'm like almost renewed because I've got a plan for tomorrow. But how many nights have you been in your camp thinking, all right, what are we going to do tomorrow? We went here. Now, where do we go tomorrow? Mm-hmm. I've had that conversation so many times. Like, okay, what's everybody doing? What's, I mean, we didn't see anything today. I mean, what are you guys going to do? Well, I'm saying pull your hunt plan out. So if, what I recommend, just for an example, say you're doing a seven-day hunt. I do recommend 10 days for elk. I'll just be honest with you. Getting an elk on the ground, packed out, um, without stock, and having a productive hunt in seven days is difficult for elk. It just is, guys. It's it, it can be done, but on a seven day hunt, I recommend a four day hunt plan. Four, maybe five, depends. And what I what I mean by that is there's going to be a lot of ad lib. There's going to be things that come up during. You're going to want to look. Oh, I'm on this. But having the five days or four days planned out gives you a lot of resources to rely on. You don't have to stick to the script. I'm telling you, if you go through the process of this course and you develop that plan, you're very rarely going to have to pull it out. Because you, you've got, I call it, I say this all the time, you've got so much historical knowledge built by working this system that by the time you get out there, you rarely even have to look at it. You're going to refresh your memory. Or if you get in trouble and you're like starting to fret about it, you can kind of look mm-hmm. and make sure you've hit all the, dotted all the I's, crossed all the T's. Um, but. So when you, when you, when you're saying hunt plan, you yeah. know, we talked about eliminating these areas but when you say hunt plan you're talking about like 
I got a sheet of paper. I'm like, I got my area. I've got, you know, you say four days. I got day one. I'm going to check out this ridge, go to go out on this finger, glass, this face. Good point. For this many hours. Like, what, okay, what does good, that consist good of? Good question. It's funny because I've done so many parts. You start assuming stuff. And my course is all about not assuming. So it's, I'm glad you asked me a question. So the hunt plan, the structure of it, when I'm all done, Meaning I've, I've fleshed it all out. I kind of got an idea where I want to go. Now I reduce it to, now I will be, let's, let's back up. I will be keeping notes all along the way. Mm-hmm. And so I'll be starting to see trends develop. I'll be like, I'm liking this area and I've got, these are things I like about this area, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But when I write the hunt plan, the way I do it is, I, I mean, this is so stupid, simple, but, and it seems so ridiculous that most guys may not do it, but I'm telling you, it's powerful. I put the dates, I put... My access point, I got the tr- where I'm going to park. I've got all this written out. I've got any special notes of anything related to getting there and getting out. I got all that. And then I've got day one. I've got morning, and then I've got three objectives. It might be a ridge. It might be I'm going to glass that morning. It might be I'm just going to still hunt up. I'm going to check these meadows for sign. Whatever the focus is, that I will have a morning strategy. I will have a midday strategy. And, and midday might be napping. I mean, let's just be honest, whatever it takes. Mm-hmm. And then evening hunt is going to be this strategy. And what I do when I, when I develop the strategy is I've got these waypoints, okay? We, I call them the elk finding features. You know, the benches, the meadows, the things like that. The things, the locations that I want to check out when I get there that I think will hold elk. That's what I call an elk finding feature. The benches, the flat bottom drainages. You know, we're looking for sign. We're looking for and I'm not going to dig into that stuff right now because I feel like that's those things. You can find that information really easily. That's, that's right. something that's easy to Google search. So, y'all, we're not going to get into those specific features right. in this podcast. You can Google, like, very. that's very easy to Google. You can well, we, find course, that in a million go, places. You can course. get in that in the course. Um, but, but so, anyway, so you got all your elk fighting features, you know, and you're putting your objectives per Every, you know, morning, noon, mm-hmm. night. And it's kind of your guiding light, you know? And you can be as detailed as you... It kind of depends on your personality. I know guys that just kind of cliff note it. Uh, I know guys that write dissertations. <laughs> it's what you are like. And um, all I'm doing in the course with the hunt plan is I do have a template, my template, that you can download and use. You're welcome. It's in the course. Or you can modify, develop. It's in Word. You can change it. You can download it. Just the point is to develop a plan. And I don't even care if you ever pull it out. It's the process. You know what they always say? If you write something down, you remember it. But mm-hmm. And the process of preparing it, man, you're ready to go. You're like totally, you got all your hunt areas. You got your main one really worked out. You've got a couple backups. Um, and then I talk about how to structure your backups too. Like not just different hunt areas, but there's a method to that too. Like I always have a base camp option. Remember we talked about those guys that tried to peck in, couldn't? Yep. Even me. Like, let's say I got an injury or I twisted my ankle. I will always have an area real quickly. I may not spend a ton of time on it, but I will always have an area that I can base hunt out of a vehicle if I need to. I may not ever use it, but I got it. And then the other thing I almost always do now because I got I got hose on this one year, I always have a radical change in elevation plan. If a snow event comes, mm-hmm. that happened to me. I had five hunt areas, beautiful hunt areas. Unfortunately, they were all at the same elevation. So when September 15th came, we had 20 inches of snow. Bulls stopped bugling, everything. They were still there. They just were being difficult. So we had to make a change. Well, damn it. All my hunt areas were at the same damn elevation. 
So I learned my lesson about that. So I always have one of those is a radical change in elevation. The other reason to have a radical change in elevation is food sources. High mm-hmm. country elk like it high unless it's dry. They will follow the green food down. Colorado is the worst state for this, okay? I've hunted most of my years in Colorado. Those elk can be at the, everyone knows they can be 13,000 feet, but they can also be at five. Mm-hmm. That's what, the bad part about Colorado is I think one of the reasons Colorado has so many dang elk and so many dang hunters is they're very adapted to changing elevations based on the food sources. And sometimes that's hard to pick up. You can look at moisture content on weather channels and all kinds mm-hmm. of things to get an idea. But when you get there and the 11,000 feet, it looks like it's a, dried up hay field and you're not finding elk sign i will not spend a lot of time there i will pack my butt up and move down 2,000 feet or drive the roads and i will glass but i'm not glassing for elk i'm glassing for green i'm seeing what elevation is it starting to and it may be dry i mean it just depends on the state i know this is not a perfect science but i think you're getting my point oh yeah is work that angle and, um, but that's not something you hear people talk about very much. They're just like, we're going to 13,000 feet. That's where the elk are in Colorado, which I agree if the conditions and the moisture and mm-hmm. everything is right. But I've also been at 12,000 feet and nothing. It's crickets up there. And I couldn't believe they're down in the scrub brush and the scrub oak and the sage and down in those lower elevations. Um, so, you know, you just, you got to be ready to adapt. So some states like Colorado, I definitely would always have a, Elevation change in my plan. That was a long-winded answer to your question, but did that kind of do it? No, absolutely. And it, it, it tells you, you know, I mean, you know, of course, there's going to be variety in what works for you won't necessarily work for me, won't work for them. And you're going to want to adapt this so it's yeah. most functional for you, how you process information. But, no, I mean, I, I, that's fantastic because, yeah, so often you know, I, I think back to my our Colorado hunt where we got in there and a lot of what we did was got in and we're like, well, okay, what are we going to do today? Well, do we want to go sit that water yeah. well, or, or no, should we be getting up higher or do we want to go check out the, that slide over here? You know, and we just sat kind of hashing it out on site. Yeah. And it just wasn't, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. A most, a lot of days that's perfectly fine, but where this written really pays off is when, Stuff's not happening. Well, and that was the problem. Yeah. We weren't seeing action. Yeah. And we went in, and, and the, uh, part of the issue was we went in because last year it was a war zone, apparently. Like, he was like, he's, he's like, I thought, I thought it was a bunch of elk hunters in there. He's like, but there was no one. Oh, it was bugle fest. It was just an so absolute. So do you think that, do you think that was a moisture food content issue? Or what and that think? was, that was, so not this last season, but the season before in Colorado. And Colorado was really weird that year. The, the weather was strange and it was like super, super dry. Yep. And, uh, and it was just, and then it was switching. And I mean, that was, that was a rough year. Uh, and from what I heard from everyone, but, um, yeah, we got in and, and, we just expected to get in there and have it just be like, Rah! you know, the whole time. But wasn't. we saw a couple of cows and we, you know, we saw those cows and we're like, okay, sweet. This is where they're going to be. We got in. We did not hear a single bugle that entire time. We, we debate if maybe we heard, maybe we heard one. <laughs> but at that point, you're probably yeah. imagining. Exactly. I'm, I'm just kidding. No, it, 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 <laughs> we were, we were like, oh, please let it, <laughs> let it happen. Please um, let it happen. I think the whole time we saw three cows total and 
it's just nothing was happening. And so, and of course, you know, you're getting dejected. You're it's getting, tough. And, and, and then it gets real easy to be like, you know what? Let's I'm just, just call gonna, it early. I'm just going to, I'm just going to stay in the tent today. I'm just yeah. going to crash and rest versus like you said, you have that written hunt plan. You can look at that and you have there's options reason, and there's a motivation. There's a reason you picked those spots. You were at the, you were having a beer or whatever. I would have a beer. Yeah. You're relaxing. You're in the air conditioning of your house or heat, wherever you're at. You got your four, mo- I got a four 27 inch monitor set up for my mm-hmm. East County. I'm kicked back and I'm really analyzing it. The point I'm trying, I'm over dramatizing this, yeah. but you, there was a reason you selected to drop that pin there. And don't ignore it when you're in the field just because things aren't happening. You haven't been there yet or whatever. You know, and you've kind of organized this. There's plenty of room to ad lib. There's plenty of room to get off the reservation. Um, you don't have to stay in your lane. That's not what I'm saying. You don't want to, you never want to have a scripted minute by minute hunt plan. Mm-hmm. That is not the point of this. Almost, I, I don't know if you caught on to this, but really, almost the most part of this is you're continually developing that historical knowledge of you're learning the area before you're even there. And then when you're there and you're talking and whatever, you start saying, well, this, this ridge or that ridge, you're just like, you're almost like you've been there because you've just been studying it. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of guys will be like, oh, this looks like a great spot. Okay. That's, that's my friend. That's good. That's a good spot. This is a good, we're going to go in here and they got a couple of waypoints. They just roll in there. Um, I, I'd be embarrassed to probably show you my, my Gaia or Onyx for like a couple <laughs> of my, how many points it's almost overwhelming. That's another reason that if you are one of those guys that drop a lot of points, kind of like me, mm-hmm. random stuff, having that hunt plan kind of lets you sort out the riff raft, your critical points. It gets rid of the noise. Well, and we haven't even talked about this. So I, another module in the course, real quick, this is probably a good time to interject this. I've never said this on another podcast because it never came up, but one of the modules that I have is a custom markup module. One of the things I learned a long time ago was I drop random pins in Gaia, Onyx, Google Earth, whatever, just random pins. What I always do, like religion, I will drop, you know, an Onyx is a red pin. Yeah. Okay. The red means unassociated random to me. Yeah. Okay. Just something that I saw, I'm interested in. I'm not invested in it. There's just some reason that I dropped it. And, but then when I'm working on my developing my hunt area, if that is a bench that I really like, I will label it with an icon that I've designated or a color um, for the different elk finding. I kind of have a system for all the elk finding Mm -hmm. features, but then I have one more level. I have a prime and a secondary level. So if I have a feature that is overwhelmingly exciting to me, like I found a beautiful North slope with this beautiful bench three quarters of the way up and this, it's just beautiful. I put a star on it course. I mean, why wouldn't you pick a star? Yeah. So you got the star. Okay. That's not so big a deal. And then all of a sudden you're over here and you get another star. And then you like, oh, this is really good. I'm going to mark that. Then when you step back and look at it, you're not looking at a bunch of red. Now, Onyx, I don't know if they have a star. What You have to just decide your own system. But my point is you've got one icon that you don't use except for prime spots. And then you've got this spot over here that has five prime spots. Well, don't ignore that. <laughs> okay, and then you've got this spot over here that has none. But it's got a lot of red dots, but you really don't like anything that much. Doesn't mean you won't go there. Just may mean you go here first. So, I, you know, I spend a lot of time in the course, or the whole module almost, 
talking about how to set up your custom markup system and how to approach it from colors to icons, how to translate them, how to transport them and import them and export them from the various module. I'm sorry, from the various platforms, because you probably know this. That's huge. Yeah, when you that take is a data, disaster. It can be. Well, when you take data out of one system and put it into the other, it defaults to the default icon, mm-hmm. right? So if I take, if I did all my e-scouting work in Google Earth, oh yeah, and then I exported it and put it in on X, which I do, it's all red dots. So you don't do the custom markup work, okay? Until you're in your final platform, whatever you're going to use mm-hmm. in the field, as your main. So that brings up another one. So I have a main system that I use for every hunt. If I'm, and I'm probably going to ruffle some feathers here, but if I'm hunting western or eastern Montana on an antelope hunt and private land is my gig, like I'm really concerned about that. That's an important part because you're working BMAs and, yeah, you know, whatever, private land issues. I'm always on X as my number one platform. If I'm hunting elk away from private land, I'm in a, in a wilderness. I'm uh, normally, that's where I like to go. Gaia is my number one. Because I like the pure USGS topographic view. I like the green and white topographic. Okay. I do not like the hybrid of Onyx for most things. But that's my point. There's, it's like having a tool. If you're a carpenter, do you build a house with a hammer? No. But you need a hammer. I always, on every single trip, I have Onyx fully downloaded, fully offline, fully tested, all of my waypoints for mm-hmm. all of my hunt areas. Now, I won't go through... I will say, I will not go through and change the icons, okay, for my backup system. Only my primary, because it just takes too much time. Yeah. But I've got Gaia, the full set of day, the full line, and I will constantly during the hunt be switching back and forth. And just because Onyx does some really amazing stuff, and Gaia does some really amazing stuff, and they do some things very similar, but there are some very, very, and we go over a lot of these, but good things about Onyx that I'd love. Private land they kill. Let's just be honest. Mm-hmm. And Gaia does some amazing things when you're talking about topographic layers. They've got 20 layers, 30 layers that you can use offline. Gaia Onyx has three, hybrid, aerial, topo. So using the right tool for the job. Here's the thing. You know, you, you going further with your metaphor, yeah, you know, okay, do you— use a hammer to build the entirety of a house? No, but no, you use a hammer, but you don't just use one hammer. Right. You, you'll you use like a roofing hammer. You'll yeah. use a smaller one. You'll use like three or four. You're building an entire house. You'll use three or four different hammers. So, you, you know, you, you look at these tools. They're all very similar tools, but they have slightly different benefits and yes. little right. like. And so what I'm starting to see the trend now is all the guys I talk to about e-scouting, I, what do you, I'll use Onyx. Okay, good. Desktop version. Great. Do you use Google Earth? No, no. I, I like all the things that, I like the fire layers. I like all the stuff that Onyx has. I'm like, yeah, but do you realize you can't do 360 tilt. You can't zoom in near the level of, on, of Google Earth. And one big thing is most people don't realize, th- th- one of the biggest modules in the course is Google Earth. I'm a huge Google Earth guy. And most people don't realize that Google Earth has so many capabilities. Mm-hmm. And I've been blown away by that. I just thought everybody knew. And I'm like, I'm talking about, you know, when you're looking at Topo on Google Earth and you're looking, you can switch back and look at me like, what do you mean Topo on Google Earth? I'm like, yeah, just put the Topo layer on. Yeah. I'm like, what? 
they don't even know you can do it. And so <laughs> EarthPoint is the one I use. There's several, but EarthPoint Topo K- KML KML file is what I use predominantly. You set up Google Earth with the KML file. Now you've got full topographic maps, USGS. 7.5 minute topo mass for the whole United States. Do you use that function on Google Earth? I've uh, I've used it before. Yeah. I mean, I am not. So anyway, I'm not nearly at the level of East County. I, <laughs> I hope people are paying attention because I, I know I'm just talking here. But so you can download from EarthPoint. You can download this. Do a, do a Google search for EarthPoint, and it's free. There's mm-hmm. no cost to any of this. Download the KML file and open it up in Google Earth under my and, and put it in your My Places folder. And now you've got instant topographic layer for the entire United States. But it gets even better. So now you got your topographic layer, and then you always have your aerial photo because obviously that's the default for Google Earth. But a lot of people don't even realize this is in Google Earth, when you click on that topographic layer, and then there's a transparency button down there. You can slide that transparency on that topographic. Now you got a hybrid. Mm-hmm. Just like on X. You've got a hybrid, and not only is it a hybrid, but it's a controllable hybrid. Yeah, that's the, cr- See, that's the important part. That's so it's key. just what it is. And it's great. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to bash anything. I'm just being brutal. And that's one of the things about this course. I know we're all over, but it's important stuff. I get no sponsorship, no endorsement, no nothing. And I refuse it. I do not want it. I want to be able to tell my raw, uninfluenced opinion about all of it. I love OnX. I have great friends that work in OnX. They're based in Missoula, yeah. where I'm at. And But I love Gaia, too. And I'm starting to like base map for some things. I can't say enough. I can't say much about base map yet because I'm still in the testing phase of that. Um, but I will be having a full module on base map coming up. But so we're back to Google Earth. So now we've got our topographic layer in Google Earth. And I'm going to go pretty quick here because I know we're running out of time. But I wanted, I just want people at this point on this podcast, I know you didn't want to get into like the details. They can get the details. Let's just introduce them. So I want to run down a list. And this is probably going to blow some people's minds, to be totally honest. You can download for Google Earth all of the fires for the entire United States in one layer. Not only can you download the fires, but they go back to 1980. Mm -hmm. X only goes to 2000. That's a big difference. I didn't even realize it until I was... Doing some work around Yellowstone. I guide in Yellowstone. Okay. And I was in Onyx. I was planning my routes. I was looking. I'm like, I was, you know, and then I, for some reason, I pulled up Onyx and it looked like a freaking fire zone, but it wasn't labeled as a fire. And that got me looking. And that's how I found that I did some Google search and did some investigation, found the fire layer. And that's what started. That was years ago. And that kind of centered me on the fact that Google Earth has a lot more capabilities than what comes in the package. So download the fire layer. Now you can get all the motor vehicle use maps for the entire United States in one file. Every Now, I will recommend, again, I can't get into how to do it, but it's way big file, and Google Earth will crash a lot. But there's a way around it. You can only look at, you can only open the KML file for the area that you want. There's a way to do it. And I go over that in the course. It's really powerful. Like, if you're only hunting a few states, don't yeah. download Pennsylvania. It's just going to clog up your Google Earth. So, you, you get what I'm saying, right? Yeah. You got all the motor vehicle use. You got all the motor vehicle trails as well. Motorcycles, ATVs. And what Google Earth has, I mean, what Google Earth, not what this KML file layer has is when you click on it, you know how in Onyx you can click on it to get more information about the road? Yeah. You wouldn't believe the information that's available in this KML file. Really? Dates, road type, 
what it's even what kind of gravel is on the road. It's unbelievable. I mean, it is so detailed on those motor vehicle use. Well, because so, so how many times have you you're looking at it on the Google Map? You're like, that is a ginormous trail. It looks like I'm gonna I could drive a semi truck right. down that thing. And you get up, you can't even see the damn trail yeah. on there. Like that has happened to me. A ton of times. Yeah. Or, or you'll be hiking through the woods. You'll be looking at the, you know, you're looking at your Onyx as you're hiking through. All of a sudden, there's this giant two-track, and there's no sign of it on there. Like, so well, it's the being able to, of the images. Exactly. Being able to check the Double information check. about those roads is huge. So remember earlier, I know this is kind of deep stuff here, but remember we talked about the zones of pressure? And then remember we talked about taking that, downloading the National Forest mm-hmm. uh, Motor Vehicle Use Map and kind of double-checking. Once I'm done with that, I will double-check it to my Google Earth just to make sure. And if I find a discrepancy, I start digging in, figure out what, yeah. who's wrong. Is it the National Forest Map? Is it Google? At least it draws my attention to a potential problem. Mm-hmm. And if I would have – remember the example I gave you about the June and the closure and the uh, September yeah. closure? Yeah. If I had done what I just said, I guarantee I would have caught it. It probably wasn't the same in all of them, but I didn't do it. I got yep. I got lazy. I got comfortable that I was good with it. So anyway, motor vehicle use, another one, a big problem in Colorado, cattle allotments, grazing. Huge. There's a layer for the whole West. Not nice. only cattle allotments, but what type of livestock and the contact information for who's running the livestock. You can call and find out, hey, are you up in this area or are you not? It's incredible. I just now that layer I just found about a year ago. That's incredible. Um, now not every state does it, so it's not as important in Montana and other states. But you know, if cattle is an issue, and then the knowing these allotments and it's just a layer you turn on and off in Google Earth. The other one is um, uh, fires. I said and logging timber. Same thing. Mm-hmm. Timber areas now. You know, logging in the United States is a little less than it used to be, but. It's got all the logging, and then when you click on it, again, oh, man, it's got who's logging. It's got if it's clear cut. It's got if it's fire hazard cut. It's got if it's um, just thinning. It's got everything about that cut, when it was started, when it was finished. And that helps you analyze, like, because timber cuts are very difficult in Google Earth. You look at a timber cut, and the image is 2014. It looks like it's wide open. You're going to be able to glass, and you get there, and the shit's grown up eight Mm -hmm. feet, and you can't see nothing because there's too much eight years went by yeah you got to understand that you got but you never figure that out if you only use on x there's no dates to go by you just oh this looks like a big opening we can glass that then you get there it's grown up because it's a timber cut um and uh so but anyway there's all kinds of these layers that in the course i teach you how to set up your google earth for maximum e-scouting capabilities for all these layers that you can turn on and off and on and off and on and off and then one of the last things is toprut.com. I always mention this because it's an amazing site. They have the ability, you have the ability to go there and download the unit that you want to hunt and the species in one file. Have you ever used it? No, I've oh, heard I've incredible. heard of it. I've had people mention it, it's but I haven't incredible. used it personally. You down, let's say you're hunting unit 70 in Wyoming. It's a wilderness area. So I'll say that because most non-residents can't hunt it. <laughs> download unit 70. It comes with the fire comes with the roads, comes with the contours, comes with the wilderness area boundaries, comes with private property, comes with national forest, state land, everything KML for Google Earth. They just boxed it up. It's all really clean for you. The only thing about it is it's one unit. Yeah. Which for a lot of guys, that's all they need. I want the whole state. 
That's why I use some of the other layers in conjunction with theirs. Yeah. But hunting districts is another, not on Google Earth, okay? There's several sources that you can download all of the hunting district boundaries and put them right in Google Earth. So people tell me, well, Google Earth just doesn't do what my, what OnX does or what Gaia does. It does. You have to set it up. Yeah. And if you set your Google Earth up the way I'm kind of portraying and you side-by-side OnX, you've got a very sophisticated e-scouting system. And you're leaving very little to chance at that point. You're able to look at imagery because you know Google Earth. You can go back in the historical timeline and look at imagery way back. Mm-hmm. So you've got that capability with all the same layers of OnX. But then you can jump over to OnX and on X, I will give them now. Now I will throw on X a bone. I've been kind of hard on, <laughs> but now I'm going to give them some praise. So they sent out a little subtle email um, about a month ago. Said they updated their air, their aerial photo imagery. Okay. I'm you know when I see that kind of stuff, I'm an East Guiding geek. So I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if they really did. They did. Their imagery is not not every area. Yeah. But they've got something different. I don't know. You know, I don't know. I mean, I'm just guessing. But they have not only have they sourced new imagery, but they've done something. They've photo enhanced it <laughs> as well. So their imagery, I have found so many examples in Google Earth, which used to always be the most current. But now OnX has way better imagery than Google Earth in some cases. Now, in other cases, I, like I told you, you can't beat Google Earth 2019 files. They've yeah. started uploading them just recently. Not every place obviously has it, but any place. I'm so excited when I when I'm east scouting an area and I see it's 2019. You wouldn't believe the level of detail. I mean, you can oh, yeah. damn near see a squirrel crawling up a tree. Well, I was going to say my uh, uh, my buddy was showing me one time he, when he was first kind of telling me about east scouting and giving me kind of the <laughs> basics. He's like, "Watch this." He had a couple of spots marked. He's like, "Watch this," and he scrolled in and you could see. The, the elk tracks oh, I, going across this snow, bench. It yeah. was insane. Dude, I just east scouted an area this year that we can't get to. It's too far. Ooh. 32 miles. <laughs> and God. which is almost, you think, well, how can you get 32 miles in the United States? Well, you can in this area. And there was elk in every freaking meadow in Google Earth. Ugh. I could see the elk 40, 50 in per meadow all the way down this drainage. I'm like, we got to get in there. Yeah. And it was taken in July of 2019. The imagery oh, oh. is gold. Oh, yeah. I've found so many elk on Google Earth. You'll never find an elk on, on, on X or Gaia. I'm sorry. They just don't have the resolution in yeah. most cases. Now, the new imagery in on X is getting better. They're getting way better. But, again, I, the only reason I'm pointing out these differences is that, like, in the course, if you use the platforms and you learn how to do it, your odds are going up. If you only get one-dimensional it's fine. You're going to be fine. You can do great e scouting with just using one, but you are becoming one dimensional. And one dimensional in my in my world is not an odds multiplier. Does that make sense? You can use one hammer to build a house, but you're going to be a lot more efficient. You're going to have a whole lot better time, and the quality is you're going to be gonna a lot better. You're not going to have as many better. nicks in your trim if you're exactly. using exactly <laughs> if you're using a trim <laughs> hammer. Using the framing hammer <laughs> yeah. on your uh, you <laughs> on know, your floorboard. I, mean, I know that's a crude analogy, but it's so true. Yeah. And, um, you know, we spend, we love, you've, you've been in that room in the summit. We're here at the summit, you know, and the passion for elk hunting in there. Do you want to leave anything to chance? And I think most of it is, I, I like to believe that a lot of guys now that are even listening to your podcast, their eyes are kind of getting opened up. The fact that 
that even exists. It's not like they're not doing it by choice. They just never, nobody really ever talked about that much. Like Randy Newberg, he does a great job with a lot of different things, but it's on X only. Mm-hmm. And he's an on X guy, which I get it. He shows how to look at fires in OnX. He shows how to do timber in OnX. Nobody's showing you how to do it in Google Earth because Google Earth doesn't give a crap about hunting. Mm-hmm. They're not making any money. They're not producing videos how to use their program to do hunting. Yeah. Now, back in the old days, if you look in, if you look in YouTube, you'll find some old Google Earth. Um, I've, I've watched them all. Um, e-scouting videos, old school stuff. And uh, they've got some of this stuff in there. But there are so many layers. See, they didn't develop the cattle allotment layer. For hunters. Yeah. Let's be honest. They didn't do that. Um, they didn't develop the fire layer for hunters. They developed for fire people. <laughs> but we're using it, mm. right? So that's the thing what I'm trying to say is there's tools out there that are not marketed or promoted or advertised or even educated on as hunting. But they are very applicable to what we're doing. One of the last layers I'm going to tell you about, the gold, Jim. And Ryan, I blew his mind with this one, Ryan Lampers. He was going bear hunting, and they were worried about the snow. Are they Because they, they haven't been there. Yeah. They're packing in 30, whatever crazy distance they did. And he was saying, I wonder if there's snow in there yet. I mean, I, we, you know, I'm like, what do you mean, you wonder? Just look it up on the NORA site on Google Earth layer. He goes, what? I said, just download the freaking snow depth layer. I thought he, I mean, I thought everybody knew this, but NOAA, and again, I have, it's a long link, but anyway, this National Weather Service has a, it's a, it's a, it's a KML file, but it's a different KML file. It's called a, I don't I'm going to scrub the terminology, but let me just say it in my own words. It's a live connected KML file. Okay. Okay. And the live connected ones have the little bar. If you, if you're, you know, you'll have to look this up. I, since we're on a podcast, you can't show it, but it's a little bar, a little circle, and it shows that it's getting data, like a spinning wheel kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. That's how you kind of can recognize a live KML layer versus a static just data set. Mm-hmm. So anyway, you download and install this KML file. Now this, if for you gun hunters out here that are listening, this is the tip of all. This is worth the hour and a half you've been listening to this podcast. <laughs> You download this KML file for snow layer, and you can pull that baby up and look at your spot and see the snow depth live. You can see the snow edge live. You can see all of the anticipated snow forecast. You can see, oh, surface temperature. And I guess I'm assuming I'm not a, I'm not a weatherologist or whatever. I'm not, um, I'm not a hydrologist. They must be using some kind of infrared scanning, you know, kind of stuff oh, to come up with this. But anyway, this year, since I was coming out with this e-scouting course, I've always used it, but I never really knew how accurate it was. I said, if I'm going to put this out, I got to test this. Out. Yeah. I got to know what I'm dealing with here. So we went bear hunting. I looked up an area where we were going. I looked where the snow line was on this map, on this layer, looked at the depth. We drove up there, and I mean, dude, it was damn near Within a hundred yards accurate. Jeez. In depth, I walked through the snow. It was like it said four to six inches. It, it doesn't say four point two five inches. Let's just be honest. Yeah. It gives you a range, and I guess this must be based on. And again, I'm not somebody's going to call you out in my science, but it must be based on surface temperature or something mm. that determines because as the Earth is warming up and yeah, and it, it, the temperature of the snow is changing, maybe fractionally, but it's changing. 
And that changing must be what determines the snow depth. So it's all color-coded on this layer. I kind of wish we had a visual, but... So you've got this snow layer, and it's in shades of blue and mm-hmm. white. And it's, and, it, and the legend is right there. It's almost the like a heat layer kind of a yeah. thing. You know how you'll see, like, it's got a legend. Yeah. Like, if it's dark purple, it's over five feet. You know, whatever. So for you gun hunters that are trying to see, can I get to the trailhead? Can I drive my vehicle up there? Am I going to be in waist-deep snow? Mm-hmm. Now, remember, it's a live layer, so it's not going to work in the field, and it's Google Earth. It's not going to work. But right before you go or whatever, you can look at it. The problem with it is it's live, so you can't use it historically. Does that make sense? Yeah. You yeah, can't you look can't up go back and, and say, check, like, what was the snow depth last year in September? Now, you could probably f- do that in other places, but not on a Google Earth layer that I've been able to find. Yeah. But that live layer, it, it's even somewhat applicable to archery hunts. Well, I was going to say, that would have been really with nice. really high elevation stuff. For my archery hunts this year, because, I mean, the snow hit so hard or so yeah. early here in Montana. Yeah. Most of my season, I was trudging through snow. My very first hunt in Idaho snowstorm blew in out of nowhere and i could have pulled out i could have looked at the snow data and found a spot below the snow line to better adjust i mean which i should have already had a plan b but that's going way back well so for bear hunters i mean i'm sure there's some bear hunters it's gold for bear because you know how bears when they come out they don't get on the snow line they want to be about a few hundred feet let's call it four to five hundred just for generic to where it starts to turn green. It's mm-hmm. not green, right? It's nasty brown for a while, right? But as the snow recedes and the grass starts to grow, that was fresh. That's what those bears that's want. That's candy right there. Man, you can just look at that layer, and you can almost draw a circle. You can take Google Earth, draw a circle, 500 yards elevation down from the snow layer, export that circle, bring it into Onyx, and you've got your bear boundary right there. Mm-hmm. I haven't even used that technique, but it makes sense to me. I mean, hey, I want to know where there we the, go. New revelations on the podcast. Yeah, right. right I mean, you know, I kind of thought of that as we because that that's not been something I've been using for very long. That's another new one. Um, but I guess what I'm trying to say is there's so many tools that not many hunters talk about. Mm-hmm. And I know there's going to be things. I, it, so what's great about my course, too? I mean, I'm too my own whore here, but and this was an unforeseen benefit. I added a discussion to every module. So every of the 25 modules, let's say you're in, well, for example, in Google Earth, there's a discussion pane where all the members can ask questions for me. And people can even answer other people's if they want. But this dude got on my site. He's a, he's a brand new elk hunter. He must be. He's a brand new elk hunter. And he signed up for my course. And he's in there. And he wrote this whole freaking diatribe of how to use these PDFs and link them in. I think we talked, I don't know if we talked about it earlier, but how to use CalTOPO, which is another big, big CalTOPO is really, I don't cover it much in the course yet because it gets deep and I'm kind of going to come back to that as one of the tools. Um, you can get by without CalTOPO, but it's got, CalTOPO has some really incredible stuff. But anyway, um, you can pin these motor vehicle use PDFs. Remember me talking about it? Mm-hmm. You can pin them. You can import them into CalTOPO and pin the lat lawn corners okay. and have the live, real PDF on top of your overlay. I, I knew it could be done because I know that's how they do the geo tips, mm-hmm. the topograph. That's how, they, that's how they put the topographic maps as a layer. They pin them by, like, some geo tip thing, 
Again, I apologize for my science. I just know it works. <laughs> but he wrote this, How to Do the Motor Vehicle Use. If you want, What he was saying, the whole point of it was he loved the zones of pressure with the maps, but he was just saying, now, you know you could do that digitally, and this is how you do it. So all these people in the course got the benefit of this cartologist, this super mm-hmm. map genius that just doesn't know how to hunt elk yet. He's in the course to learn how to do, but he provided this great information. So I guess my point is some of the members – are starting to contribute to this to the power of the information in the course. It's a self-developing course, really. Kind of, in some, some ways. Extent, yeah. With things like that. Because, I mean, like I said, guys, I don't know everything. I certainly don't. I've been hunting out for 32 years. I'm going to pass my knowledge along. I'm going to give you the best information I can. But there's going to have to be things you're going to work out on your own. But this course is 30 modules. It's 20 hours of video already. I got five more to go. It's going to take you a week or two to even do the course. And I think you're going to get some knowledge bombs out of it personally but it's up to you to decide all right so if people want to find the course where well, they I want to give you if you're okay you can edit this out if you want but uh, i want to give a promo code so i yeah, just you'll absolutely. be the first one so i just started a new affiliate program i'm not going to do any marketing like paid marketing i'm going to rely i'm going to use my e-count my podcast friends and i want i want them to have their own codes and to give a discount to their guests Instead, I just think that's a better way to go. All right, and, all right. uh, so anyway, the course is 119, but the launch price was 79. So I'm meeting everybody. I'm doing $25 off the course for code. What do you want your? What do you like your code to be? Let's see. I, I love TWI. Okay, TWI. TWI yeah. is your code. <laughs> there we go to save $25 um, on the course, and you can go to TreelineAcademy.net. That's the course page. Or you can go to treelinepursuits.com, and you can get to it from there. But on treelinepursuits.com, I have all my blog articles, all my dehydrated meals, all my – I have a whole thing on dehydration. That's my next course that will be coming next year is going to be dehydrated meals. Now that I'm really loving doing this, I really have a passion for dehydrating my own meals. And Ryan pushed me into that. Mm-hmm. And I think Ryan and I – he doesn't know this yet, but – I'm going to try to get him to team up with me on this course. It's nice. going to be great. Nice. And I'm kind of just throwing him out there right now live. Um, and so, but anyway, treelinepursuits.com has got my YouTube stuff for all my other stuff. It's got all my blog articles. It's got a bunch of dehydrated food stuff. It's got a lot of llama stuff. <laughs> all my llama rentals, my guided trips, and that kind of stuff. Is all Shame you there. don't have much going on. No. <laughs> I'm a serial. We, I was talking about this on the Gritty Podcast. I'm a serial entrepreneur that just is crazy about elk hunting. Yeah, we don't know anybody else around here that's like no, that. No, this room is yeah. full of them. So you feel like a, you know, some places you feel special, but here you don't. You're just, <laughs> you're just one of many. Well, it's been great meeting you. Absolutely. Finally. And uh, like I said, Ryan talks really highly of you. So. <laughs> and he doesn't talk highly of, well, Ryan just doesn't talk very much, period. <laughs> but uh, it's been an honor. Awesome. So. Know where to find the course. I'm going to make sure to link to that on the show notes page. Okay. It's going to be on thewildinitiative.com. One thing I always like to close with yeah. is, you know, say you run into someone, you know, just uh, wherever it happens to be. They know you're an elk hunter. They know you're passionate about it. They're like, man, you know, or maybe they just came across one of your videos. Yeah. And they're like, gosh, that looks so cool, man. You know, I've always kind of wanted to do hunting, but... Maybe they're like me. They're from the city. Or maybe they just, whatever it is, they didn't grow up doing it. They don't have any background in it. They're like, man, this is so cool. I've always wanted to do this. But 
I don't know. There's a lot to learn. It's really intimidating. I don't, I don't know if it's for me. What would you tell that person? Well, I hate to even do this. I'm going to promote some others that I get. I, I get no benefit from this. Corey Jacobson's Elk 101 class is the best. I don't even want to say beginner because it's not just for beginners. The the best, most comprehensive. Soup to nuts, like start beginning to Beginning to end, how to yeah. skin, how to do everything. My course is hardcore, only e-scouting and hunt mm-hmm. planning. That's it. I'm going to try to show you everything I know about how to find elk. He shows you everything he knows on how to hunt elk. There's a big difference. Oh, yeah. It, he talks about all aspects, even some e-scouting. You can compare some of his e-scouting work even to mine. I think you'll see some similarities. Um, but there's a few resources. I would go to Elk 101 for sure. I would say for nine. well, you can always get a discount code. Um, it's whatever. There's plenty of them available. He does a masterful job. I, I'm from Missouri. I have a lot of friends from Missouri that now think that I'm their personal guide in Montana. <laughs> But I make them all take this course. It's a requirement. If they're going to come hunt with me, they do not until they take it. Because, one, they need to know what they're doing on some level. And um, and I'm not going to hold their hand on everything. But I have friends that never hunted, never even shot a bow, and took his course, got a bow, learned how to, and did great. Didn't kill an elk, got close, and had the time, and now they're hooked Oh yeah, from that course. So that's number one. Number two is Randy Newberg. I can't say enough about him. I know I was making fun of the Onyx thing, but dude, his late season elk, his specific e-scouting things that are very targeted, like the fires, watch everything that he does on all those. They're, they're, they mimic. The other thing he does a great job at is the basic needs of elk, understanding what elk eat, when they eat it, why they eat it. He does a great – I have a whole module on that in the course too, but he does a really great job on that. You can't hunt animals that you don't understand. You heard Dan Stanton. Dan Staten from Elk Shape say mm-hmm. that in his presentation. I He couldn't have said it better. You can't hunt a critter very effectively. Again, it's an odds multiplier. Is it the end all that you know what they eat in September? No. But is it incredibly helpful? Yes. And so understanding that, Randy's another really good one about that. And if you're looking to try to get tags, you know, you may, it, it's a complicated. It's like a whole degree. Let's just yeah. be honest nowadays. Trying to figure out how it works, how it doesn't work, all this stuff. GoHunt.com is great. God bless it. And there's a new one out there, and I don't want to riff anybody, but Eastman's got one. I just, yep. they just called me this week and did a demo with me over the phone. I was a little blown away. They need to change. There's a few tweaks need to be made. It's called Tag Hub. It's out live, but they're constantly, you know, kind of in the process. So Tag Hub, Go Hunt, and then if you really want just raw research data and it doesn't cost very much, and it's worth every penny, is toprut.com. So their KML files, remember we were talking about, mm-hmm. are free. But they have a whole research site, of part of their site, where you can look up states and units and districts and hunting success and every, how many points and all the stuff for $19 a year for every state. So it's a great resource. So those, and then the other one, the last one I'll tell you, is Corey Jacobson and Randy Newberg together and individually do a lot of mm-hmm. strategies, tag drawing strategies for the Western states. Excellent resources. You watch those videos and you're going to have a good understanding of how New Mexico works or how whatever state Idaho works. I'm going to tell one last story before we go about it. You mentioned about beginners. And I'm not telling this story to tell you how dedicated I am to 
DIY public land beginner level elk hunters. I'm just telling you how much passion I have for elk hunting. I showed up at this trailhead. This was two year, three years ago. I had just started tree line. I wasn't even hardly doing much. A few videos, a few things, whatever. Pulled up. My llamas are always the center of attention anywhere. I pulled up, had my llamas, unload my llamas. And these two dudes are over in their car. We're both at the trail at the same time. I'm not, who cares? It's a big trailhead. I'm hit. I knew I could outwalk them with my llamas. I mean, come on. So they're sitting, but they kept looking over at me, kind of, you know, I thought they were just looking at the llamas. So finally they got up enough courage. They came over and they're like, are you tree lion pursuits? I'm like, man, I'm famous now. <laughs> so anyway, so yeah, I, man, we watched your video. That, that's great. And I said, yeah, thanks, man. Well, man, this is your, I, we don't want to be in your spot. No, dude, I haven't even hunted this area. This brand new, like most of my areas. I said, uh, where are you guys? I said, just so we don't, you know, we end up, we're kind of going the same way. And I said, well, why don't you guys, if you want, you just hike in with me and then we'll whatever. So we're hiking in and talking. We dang near killed a bear on the way in. We get to where where I was going to camp the first night because I was going to check out this area really close. And um, I don't even know if it's where I was going to camp. It didn't matter. What I said was, I said, hey, if you guys want to camp with me tonight, I'm solo. You can go do your own thing. Oh, man, that'd be great. So they were sitting around that night. And they're talking, they've been hunting, they had never killed, and I start finding more about their mm-hmm. story, and and I said, uh, I mean, I'm not a, I mean, I'm not an expert caller, I said, but I did win the Cabell's Calling Contest last a couple weeks ago, and I said, I'll call for you guys in the morning if you want, I mean, I'm no hurry, I'm out here for whatever, man, be, so we all, we got up in the morning, started <laughs> down the trail, dude, we didn't even make it 100 yards, this bull bugles, and, uh, we're like, oh, cool. And these guys are like, their eyes are like, you know, huge. I'm like, okay. And then I, my typical self, I kind of took charge, maybe too much. I'm like, you got to get here. You got to get here. I'm going to back up. So we called the bull right in, and they could, they no shots. It, they, the bull just never gave him anything really good. But he was all over him. I mean, he was mm-hmm. walking all around. Finally, he just didn't like it. You know, he heard elk but wasn't seeing elk. So he retreats. So we hook up. I'm like, oh, what's going on? He goes, oh, man, he just was right down. They were so excited. Said, and I'm like, he's still here. I said, let's, let's slip down. Let's make another call from a, about a quarter mile away so maybe he thinks it's another elk. So we ran down the trail, get down there, make another call. Boom, he bugles again. So here he comes to another meadow, comes down, and he is parading in front of this dude. I could see him out there, but he's just he's way out there. And so I'm like, I got I to gotta move back. I'm, I'm, I'm way back. I'm like 60 yards behind him, but I'm like, I got to go way back. So I packed my shit up. I ran back in the timber, maybe another 40 or 50 yards. I'm probably over 100 yards from him. And I bugle, and I hear him bugle, and then I bugle, and he's bugling close. And then I, I thought I heard something, and uh, nothing. It was dead silent. I bugle, nothing. Bugle, nothing. Bugle, nothing. And uh, called, you know, did, did the whole sequence, nothing. So I'm like, okay. So I started sneaking up there, and these two dudes are standing out in the field, and I'm like, oh, okay. So I walk out there, dead elk. Dude killed that the elk. Is. So met these dudes in the parking lot. They never had killed an elk, called an elk, and the dude killed it. It was a nice elk. He was so excited. And then I helped him butcher it, and then I did the ultimate. I hadn't had my llamas all that long. Why don't you guys take my llamas, pack them each your truck, and bring my llamas back? I can't believe I said that. And they did, and we've been friends ever since. So it was a good that's, story. That's <laughs> awesome. 
Well, thank you thank so you. much for taking the time. Yeah. This is absolutely fantastic. Like, well, I know you. people are going to lose their minds over this podcast yeah, and the information. Thanks. And I hope I, they will all take the time to sign up for your course. Check that out. But thank you again for taking the time. Thanks, man. Sam. Good meeting you, brother. You as well. All right, y'all, that'll do it for this episode of The Wild Initiative. Make sure to check out the show notes page at thewildinitiative.com. Get links to everything we talked about in today's episode. That'll do it for this week. See you next time. But until then, I hope this podcast inspired you to get involved, get outdoors, and plan your initiative for the wild. Thank you for listening to The Wild Initiative. Please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher and head on over to thewildinitiative.com to get show notes, check out the blog, gear discounts, other podcasts from The Wild Initiative family, and more. 